0: Hello, everyone. My name is Arti, and this is the Mahabharata. Episode 31 Magic Cows, Derelict Kings, and Pacifist Brahmins. Our last episode concluded with a backstory about Draupadi. Pima has just rid the town of Ekachakra from the barbarous creature terrorizing it. Now seeking to avoid scrutiny, our heroes have decided to leave. A wandering Brahmin has already intrigued them with his rapturous description of Princess Draupadi, but when Vyasa reappears to point them in the same direction, they firmly set their GPS for Panchal. Vyasa, moreover, makes some critical disclosures. First, King Drupad has organized a bridegroom-choosing ceremony for his daughter. Second, Princess Drupadi is destined to be their wife. To explain how such an unorthodox arrangement might be, he tells them the story of an earnest young woman who'd petitioned the god Shiva for an especially gifted husband. But Lord Shiva is known to have a mischievous sense of humor. You want a man who's wise and warlike, strong and sensitive, not to mention with Hrithik-level killer good looks? You're talking about five different men. He promises her five husbands in her next life. Now, curiously, the remarkable proposition that all five brothers should marry the same woman sparks no consternation among the Pandavas. I mean, for a conservative, patriarchal culture, this is pretty out there, right? But neither Kunti nor our heroes even blink. Hardly has Vyasa left, than they're out the door, bidding hasty goodbyes, eager for their new adventure, which promises to be a thrilling one. The next section of our text is called the Chitraratha Parva, so named after a Gandharva king with whom our heroes come into conflict. What's a Gandharva? Simon Broadbeck translates the term as light elf, as in Norse mythology. And who am I to argue? The spat with the Gandharva is itself resolved quickly, but the episode spins out into a cluster of other stories that are packed with ancient lore. In other words, if Kurosawa were producing a montage of short films, it might involve seven vignettes. The first would call Chitraratha. This would begin with the Pandavas and Kunti, powerfully motivated by the story of Draupadi's Fayamvara hastening through the woods, purposefully heading northward. So anxious are they to get to the church on time, they're walking double speed, all day and by torchlight at night. One evening, they're passing through a dense wood when they happen upon a pond, in which a somewhat excitable Gandharva is frolicking with his wives. His name is Angaraparna, but he's better known as Chitraratha for his fancy ride, which is the Lamborghini of chariots. He's quite proud of it. So Mr. Nice Car is enjoying some erotic play with his women when the Pandavas come along, invading their privacy. He gets angry. What are you humans doing here, wandering about selfishly at this hour? Don't you know that the first 80 minutes after dusk are designated for the hidden world when the Gandharvas, Yakshas, Rakshasas come out to play? Note to self first 80 minutes after dusk. This is our time, he yells, no humans allowed, bugger off. Now some of us in such a situation might be inclined to say sorry, didn't know, didn't realise. But he's talking to Kshatriyas, who, even disguised as Brahmins, are on the whole not a compliant lot. Arjuna responds with a line you might try the next time you're caught driving up a one-way street. Can you stop the ocean? Can you redirect the Himalaya? Can you block the torrent of the Ganga? Day or night, like the holy river, we go where we please. How do you propose to forbid us entry? Words are exchanged. Nice car wants them again. The strength of the forest creatures quadruples at night, I'm warning you. This is my forest. Nobody dare enter, not even the gods. Bad things will happen to you. Leave, he demands. Make me, says Arjuna. The hot-headed Gandharva jumps onto his chariot and picks up his bow. He lets loose a firestorm of arrows blazing toward Arjuna. But Arjuna wards them off with his shield, as if they were mere fireflies. He mocks the Gandharva. Your intimidation probably works with little girls, and those who don't know weapons. But now you've messed with the wrong people. Meet my fire missile. It's going to light you up like a Christmas tree. And he shoots the famous Agni Shastra he'd been given by Drona, setting ablaze poor Chitraratha's beautiful chariot and knocking him out senseless. Stunned by the impact of the missile, Chitraratha topples face down. Showing no mercy, Arjuna drags him by his pretty locks, throwing him unconscious at the feet of his brothers. But the Gandharva's wife, Kumbhinasi, pleads for clemency, and Yudhishthira instructs Arjuna to release him. Would you kill a man who needs protection from women? Let him go. When he recovers consciousness, Chitraratha's first thought is of his chariot. You incinerated my car. Now they'll call me junk heap. I swear that's true. I'll be Dagdaratha, he says. Then he recollects his near waltz with the god of death and thanks Yudhishthira for his life. I was an ass, I'm sorry. But you embarrassed me, man, in front of women. To make amends, he gives them gifts. To Yudhishthira, he bequeaths laser vision. You can peer into the heavens, look into the underworld. Normally, such capability would take you at least six months standing on one toe. But now it's my gift to you. To each of the others, he gives a hundred divine horses that move with the speed of lightning and never tire. Friends now, they sit for dinner. Arjuna asks him, what was your problem with us anyway? We're just humble Brahmins passing through the forest. Why do you target us? But Chitra knows exactly who they are. I know you, I know your entire ancestry. You're descendants of the great Tapdi. Tapti? Who's that? The Gandharva responds by launching into a story. Tapti is the daughter of Surya, the sun god, younger sibling of the brilliant Savitri, whom we'll meet later in book 3. As you might expect of one from such an illustrious gene pool, she's a vivacious, sparkling beauty but her father frets about finding her a worthy husband. All day he interviews candidates and flips through resumes. Then one day he's given the file of King Samvarana. He's a human, not ideal, but nobody's perfect. On the other hand, he seems a decent sort, pious, devoted, generally capable. The son pre-approves him for his daughter. Their meeting he leaves to serendipity. So one day the king is out doing the important work that kings do, listening to supplicants, planning engineering projects, pondering the needs of higher education. Okay, fine, he's out hunting, when suddenly his horse, overcome by hunger, thirst and fatigue, collapses and dies. Now you might wonder why drives his horse to death wasn't flagged in his FBI dossier, but let's not quibble about details the king is now steedless, reduced to hiking back home on foot. He is ambling homeward when all of a sudden the whole mountainside starts to glow, as if bathed in gold, and out of apparently nowhere appears a sprightly young woman. Having seen her, our text tells us the king despised the beauty of all other creatures and judged that his eyes had now fulfilled their purpose. Burning with love, he addresses her. Who are you and whose? And what brings you here, you delicate creature with the sumptuous thighs? He hurls himself into fulsome praise. Your limbs are flawless, your smile so sweet. You're like a jewel every heart desires. But while he's still prattling, she disappears like lightning into the clouds. Sorely stung by the serpent of love, he wanders the forest like a madman, searching for her. He dissolves into a puddle of misery. Then just as suddenly as she'd left, the girl appears again. Get up, will you? You're embarrassing yourself. You're supposed to be a king. But he's beyond caring. Love has pierced me with its sharp arrows. Love me as I love you. Don't be silly, Tapati chides him. I can't make such a decision on my own. My life belongs to my father. As a king, you should know this. Women have no independent will. I mean, we're taxed enough just deciding what to wear in the morning, which shoes go with what. Important matters are better entrusted to men. Go ask daddy. He's the sun god. Scribbling down the address, Tapati disappears. The king collapses again. A search party comes to find him, but obsessed with appeasing the sun god, he shooes everyone away. Teetering on one leg, he tries a round of tapas, but quickly realises that takes work. So he deputises his priest Vasishta to propose on his behalf, and success. But then so infatuated is the king with his new bride that he refuses to go home. Twelve years they honeymoon, while the kingdom suffers. No one collects taxes, criminals run amok, the rain god flatly refuses to visit, and soon famine is so widespread, the god of death has to hire extra staff to process the incoming. Finally, Rishi Vasishta decides enough is enough and drags the king back. Tapati and Samvarana have a son named Kuru, who was one of the great kings of your lineage. You're called Kauravas because of him. The Pandavas are now spending the night with their new friends, and as they toast marshmallows over the fire, other stories come up. Tell us about Rishi Vasishta. He sounds pretty cool. Vasishta. That's a long resume. One of the original seven sages. Priest to the Bharata king Sudas in the Rigveda, poet of the seventh Mandala, all-round really good guy. Some of the most famous stories about him have to do with his feud with the wannabe Brahmin king Vishvamitra. Another round of vodka, and they get to the story. Once upon a time there lived a great king named Gadi in the evocatively named city of Kanyakubja commemorating an unfortunate humpbacked virgin of uncertain provenance King Gadi had a son already known to us Vishvamitra remember him biological dad of Shakuntala like all Kshatriyas, Vishvamitra's hobbies include terrorizing animals for sport, and one day, tiring of the evasive maneuvers of a particularly nimble deer, he lands up at the ashram of the great sage, Vasishtha. Vasishtha receives him hospitably. He has a favorite cow he loves dearly, named Nandini, and she is no ordinary cow. She has marvelous magic powers. Sushi and strawberries, oysters and martinis. She can produce anything your heart desires. She's a wish-fulfilling cow. Observing her capabilities with astonishment as she efficiently serves up French fries and French toast, Hakka noodles and Szechuan chicken, Vishwamitra is utterly smitten, and he offers Visishta all manner of enticements in exchange for her. But would you give up a wish-fulfilling cow? Visishtha refuses, insisting she's family. I couldn't give her up even for your whole kingdom. But Kshatriyas, as we know, are an all-resort, unaccustomed to accepting no. And Vishvamitra lassos Nandini and tries to drag her away. He finds, however, that she's surprisingly strong and refuses to budge. He beats her viciously, but she doesn't move, crying to Vasishtha for help. Aren't you going to do something? Don't you love me anymore? But Vasishtha throws up his hands. He's a Kshatriya, I'm a Brahmin. What can I do? We don't believe in violence. To move the unmovable cow, Visvamitra brings out his whole army. His soldiers tie her calves and drag them away. But still Nandini refuses, pleading with Vasishtha. Seriously, why aren't you even resisting? But he tells her sadly there's nothing he can do. Help yourself if you can. This is beyond me. Poor Nandini realizes she's on her own. Her eyes start to blaze with rage and smoke begins emanating from her body. Soon entire armies tumble out of her orifices. From her flatulence come the palavas, from her dung the shakas and shabras, from her urine the yavanas. The polemical value of the uppity Greeks, with their pretensions to knowledge being urinated by a sacred cow, should not be discounted. But short story, the cow defends herself fiercely such that Vishvamitra is left truly humbled by the power of the Brahmin. Angry, depressed, he concludes that Kshatriya power is only a crude, bumbling facsimile of the real thing, and he trains his sights upon becoming a Brahmin. Vishvamitra is humbled, but our story is not over, not by far. In our next vignette, we have King Kalmashapada, who's another study in obnoxious Kshatriya behaviour. The story goes something like this. The king, bloated with power and arrogance, is marching down the highway one day when he encounters Rishi Vasishta's son, Shakti, approaching from the opposite direction. The king orders the Brahmin out of the way. Somewhat passive-aggressively, the Brahmin speaks to the king in a soothing voice, asking him to calm down, but he refuses to move. Outraged at the temerity of this upstart, the king whips him. That's just too much. Shakti is so angry, he curses him. Because of your beastly behavior, you will become a cannibal. A cannibal? Now, curses 101, dear listeners, when formulating a curse, try to avoid those that could come back to bite you, especially literally. What happens from here? Let's find out next time. If you join me for another episode of The Mahabharata.